Yup, yup. Scut of whip, mister. Scut of whip. One of the nicest sights I think I ever saw with horses would be the Punchestown races. And we'd be coming home from the, from the laundry with the laundry horse coming in and all the horse buggies and carriages and everything, horses pulling everything, all sorts of carriages and coaches and wagons and drays with tens and twenties people on it and a race down the Longmire Road coming back from Punchestown. Yemen Makamoish with his earliest memories of horses in Dublin. The carrying firm of W. Richardson Limited was established in the year 1830, and a descendant of that family, Frank Richardson, took over control of the firm in the year 1938. What kind or kinds of horses were used? The Irish draft horse was the principal one, and Clydesdale horses. Uh, there were of course, mixed breeds from one to the other. Shire horses were also used, but for general carrying work were not as satisfactory as Clydesdales and um, Shires and um, uh, Irish Draft. The principal one was the Irish Draft. Why was the, 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 the Shire not so popular? Why wasn't he so suitable? Well, they, they were magnificent-looking horses, very big horses, with big hairy feet. Uh, they were a bit slower, not as agile as, as the Clydesdale or Irish draft. And um, for General McCain, as I say, not as satisfactory. Now, uh, Guinness has used mostly, mostly Shire horses, but they looked on their horses as advertisements, and the more magnificent-looking the horse was, the better. The Hunter was, was the most common horse, particularly for drawn uh, bread vans and laundry, laundry vans and all that. But those big horses, the Clydesdales and the Shires, had big hairy feet which caused problems. According to George Kearns, whose family has been connected with horse stealing for quite some time, hairy needs looking after. Because hay, you know, gathers dirt. And dirt causes cancer. Or canker, I should say, sorry. Well, in some jobs, you see, you had not got the best of stable man. Or the man that looked after them. And Harley needs looking after. Every day. Even at night time, a wet night. See that day today now when the slush and snow is out there, outside the window? You bring a horse in at night there. His, hair, his legs are all wet. You just couldn't leave him that way. He had to be dried out. Mm. And with a bloody towel and into his heels. And that was one reason why they didn't, a lot of people didn't like hair legged horses. Though hair legged horses, they reckoned, well, he had a little more strength. You know, but that, that that was one thing about hair. Hair, unless you look after it, it's like your own hair. It's like children's hair. Nits, nits get into them and everything. And Frank Richardson, with his experience as a licensed general carrying agent, found that these horses weren't quite practical for his requirements. They were magnificent-looking horses, very big horses, with big hairy feet. 
they were a bit slower, not as agile as, as the Clydesdale or Irish draft. And um, for General McCain, as I say, not as satisfactory. I think the first horses drawn anything was the horses drawn the canal barges up along the banks of the Grand Canal and in fact we used to lead the horses and the funny thing about this was you'd lead them way up to nearly the fifth or sixth lock and then when you found you had to walk back in your arm without the horse like walking along with the horse didn't seem to be much of a walk but when you had to come back on your own but horse transport was a way of life for an economical way of life for communities and for uh, business people. Uh, most of companies, the B&I, they'd all their own set of horses. Guinnesses, hundreds of horse trays for bringing the burdens of Porter around. Uh, the LMS, all the railway, the post office with the big creel cars, all the bakeries, every bakery, horse car, very few motor cars, all the laundries were all horse cars. Of course, all the bellmen selling coal around the city was all horse cars. And then it came up to, see, transport at that time, motor cars at that time were expensive. And, of course, you could run a horse for a couple of bob a week because oats was cheap and hay was cheap and straw was cheap, things like that. Uh, they had all around Dublin uh, these lovely stone uh, water fountains where the horse could pull up and get his drink. Uh, so the horse was uh, on Cork Hill. There was a very big sign as you came up Cork Hill. Give way to horse traffic. So all horse traffic going up Cork Hill had to get right away. Uh, of course, all funerals were all... The hearse was all drawn by horses and uh, beautiful black horses. And if it, if it was uh, a married person who died, the horses wore black plumes. And if it was a single person, they wore white plumes. So this brought her up to about 1938. And then, for some unknown reason, I suppose it was mass production, uh, motor cars began to become cheap. And as we came into, say, 39, just at the war, uh, some companies were gradually making the changeover from horses to motor cars. And companies that had 100 horses now had, say, 80 horses and... 10 motor cars so the, the changeover was just about coming and a lot of the horses were getting sold off and put out in grass and stuff like that and then came the war and of course when the war came the petrol scarce immediately it was back to the horse again and then of course the, the war years was the horses on I think everywhere was horse car all around the country people coming in from mass was all horse car <laughs> You wanted a horse that wasn't too heavy, rangy type of horse, biggish horse, and um, a good mover. You bought them about uh, five, six, seven years old. Uh, 
they'd be trained at that time. And you, you, you'd buy them for, um, you'd get them for a trial, they had to be passed by a vet, and then they entered work, you see. They would work until the age of about 12, 13, 14. It all depended on the individual horse, and a lot of it depended on the individual drivers. And after that, uh, they would be placed whenever possible uh, with farmers and given a good home. The Where did you buy the horses? Uh, from various horse dealers. Cooper's was the principal one we dealt in, in my time. Well, of course, Cooper was uh, a very reputable and famous horseman. There's no doubt about that. Actually, I think it was a tragedy to see them going out of Queen Street down there. I, I can nearly still smell the old horses. That was the great thing when you come over Queen Street Bridge. The first thing you could smell was uh, Cooper's, the, the, the manure, and, and the horse has a certain odour of its own, which is, which is uh, you know, it's a nice kind of, it's a very hard thing to describe, but it, it's a nice uh, smell and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good feeling. Uh, no, there was lots of travelling people. The old tinkers, they sold plenty of horses and uh, you had different people down the country selling horses. My father used to go to fairs and my grandfather and buy them at fairs, but I never did that. The fairs held different types of horses. They were known for different types of horses. Long for the Mullingarfer, horses 15-2, 15-3, which was used as milk service, as we were known as, you know, the man to serve milk around them. Um, as I said earlier, he got the Bally Bay for a good hairy-legged one. And incidentally, for the Mullingar and Longford, you get the same type of horse, 15-2, 15-3, but you have a lot more hair to him. Same height and everything, same... Pure horses, though, coming off pure land. That was the difference, too. Down in the Scotty, New Ross, Wexford country, you buy a bloody good blood horse. Little or no hair to his legs. And he could plough or mow. He'd do anything. He'd pull a bloody car, too. He was adaptable. Utility. You know, that would be the word more than anything else. Castle Blakeney in the county Galway. I think it was... You buy a hairy leg fella there, 16 hands and that. Buy a good horse and cock. Do for anything, riding horse or anything. See, these fairs held everything. It wasn't just for the one dealer, for the one thing in mind or the one. And these dealers would buy anything. They'd buy anything. They'd say something there. They'd buy a donkey home to bring home with a horse to keep other young horses quiet. And then, of course, you had the wonderful thing of the horse called Workman, who was uh, an old horse that was bought for something like £5. And used to p- pull a milk float around Kildare, and this day they were out. To, he was out in the field, and they went out to catch him, and he got a bit of a sprite in. He says, "You're not catching me this morning." So he started a shenanigan around the field, and the boys chased him, and said, "Right, get him up against this wall, and we have him." So when he got up to the wall, the bell workman went right over it, and when they measured it, it was something like six inches higher than Beecher's Brook. So Workman was entered for the Grand National and Workman won the Grand National. I think there was some uh, gentleman in Navan won him, owned him at that time. But uh, that was, I think, 1938 
worked on, won the Grand National, and that was great. And then when Cahill won the Grand National, like the, the McDowell's horse and Early Mist and all those coming back along the Keane, the parade up O'Connell Street, you know, it was fantastic. Uh, I remember Gene Autry, when Gene Autry brought his horse champion over to the Theatre Royal, and all the people in O'Connell Street with scissors trying to cut a few hairs off Gene Autry's tail as a souvenir. <laughs> Good fellows all, that's straight and tall, take counsel and be wise. Attention pay to what I say, my lecture don't despise. Let patience guide you on every side of traitors, now beware. There's none but men would glory win, can ride my old grey mare. In Aaron's Isle, in ancient times, she was rowed by Brian Boru. Phelim O'Neill, with sword of steel, on row and Sarsfield too. Brave Michael Dwyer, not long ago, ranged Wicklow and Kildare. Torn Tandy Shears and other peers rode on my old grey mare. Brave Bonaparte, on her did start, he rode too fast, tis true. She lost a shoe at Moscow Fair and fell lame at Waterloo. When she comes o'er to wear and shore, she'll have good farrier's care. At the very next chase, she'll win the race, my sporting old grey mare. In terms of employment alone, the horse was extremely valuable. At peak periods, Richardson's yard stabled 70 horses. We were com completely self-contained. There was a place called Springfield off the Harberton Road near Rialto. We had uh, a very big premises there. We had uh, two carpenters permanently employed um, making and repairing lorries. We had two blacksmiths, again, shoeing horses and uh, putting the tyres on lorry wheels. We made our own wheels, too. We had two carpenters, uh, two um, harness makers, and they made unrepaired harnesses necessary. Then there were three yard men. There was a head yard man and two under yard men. Their job was to cut with an electric motor for cutting hay and bruising oats. Uh, they had to, once the men went off in the day, it was their job to clean out the stables, keep the place in proper order, have the feed ready in it for when the men came back in the evening time. As well as the tradesmen that you mentioned there, you had the stable men, you had the stable boys, and then you also had, as well as the stable boys, you had what was known as the horse boy. Now, like you take, at the moment, you take... Take Sheriff Street at the moment, where it's, which is a, a, a very run-down area where employment is concerned and where there's millions of ships coming in with containers that only need three or four men. There's not a hope of a young fellow in Sheriff Street getting a job. Well, 30 years ago, 
you'd be scoured in Sheriff Street looking for young fellas because you would have bought a new horse and the new horse maybe would come up in the country and be a bit shy to the city traffic. Well, you couldn't put him out in the city of Dublin or all the traffic. You had to have a horse buy. So a horse buy got a couple of quid for just holding the horse while your man was making the deliveries all day. And there was all these uh, auxiliary services. <clears throat> there was the the oats delivery. There was the hay. There was the straw. And then, of course, there was the manure. The manure itself used to sell a cartload of manure for five shillings. Then it went up to ten shillings. Then it was a pound. But I remember it at one time, big notice going up. Manure free. Please take it away today. And a bloody big mountain of it. You know, couldn't get rid of it. And... Uh, people at that time didn't realise that manure grew your vegetables or your flowers and things like that. But uh, there was, there was, there was always, there was always employment. There was always a shilling to be made in some small way where the horse was concerned. Uh, the horse buy is one aspect. Uh, the horse and cars then used to, if they got to a stage where there'd be a long carry, maybe the horse wouldn't be able to pull the car up a hot hill, something like, place like that. Well, that would mean extra breasters to go out and help to carry the coal up the hill. So it was, it was extra money. Uh, when you say extra breasters, what do you mean by breasters? Uh, well, a breaster. The, the difference between a breaster and a carter are basically the same thing. Uh, they both carry the bag of coal into your house, but the breaster works on a motor lorry. The carter works with a horse. From the point of view of the country's economy, I should have imagined it was um, a very important factor. Uh, for instance, a lot of our lorries were built of Irish oak. Whether you can still get that or not, I, I just don't know. Uh, the hay and oats were all produced here and bought here. Um, we used to use about 1,500 to 2,000 barrels of oats a year. And I've forgotten how many tons of hay, but it would be, you know, a lot. Both man and horse worked hard. Six days a week, for man and for horse. Two rounds a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And the horse carried, on average, a load of two tons each round. It made for a tough life, long hours and long days. And it's not surprising, I suppose, to find out that strong relationships were hammered out between man and animal. And the characters in... Donnelly Cold Yards were so familiar with the horses that I've known many of them to be, to be in first turn the next morning for the work. You see, they were paid on piecework. So the earlier they were in in the morning to get the pick of the work, it paid off. They'd come in late at night, 10 o'clock, go in, unyoke the horse, put away the harness, put the horse down on the bed, and then at the last minute decide... So why should I go back to Sean McDermott's seat at last night? I'll stay here for the night and bed down in the stable with the horse and be up then at six o'clock the next morning, horse yoked up and be forced out the gate to get the first pick to work. Relationships between man and animal must have been quite strong. Very strong. 
uh, 90% of the coal men, or in fact you would see a lot of this happening, they would go out the door in the morning. Now, of course, they all had to go up the quay to Butt Bridge, so it was a straight run-up. But they would wrap the reins around their legs and take out their paper and probably study farm or pick what horse they were going to back or maybe have a flask of tea or a sandwich or a smoke or even a late sleep, nod away, and the old horse would just plodder away right up to O'Connell Bridge and then they go another bit further. And then, of course, the house-to-house delivery where the horse just yup-yup and he moved on, hike-hike, and he stopped. Yeah, there was a great relationship between the two. Then, of course, uh, you had a great number of vets working because the horses got sick just the same as the human beings. And then, of course, in the winter time, when the snow and the frost and the ice, of course, the horse had to have special frost nails and there had to be special sacking and... Uh, I think the gri- the nicest thing on that line was we were coming down by Hazel Hatch one night with the Landry van and it had started to freeze about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and as we came to Hazel Hatch Bridge the ice was now from there to Mount it was just like glass there was about 5 or 6 cottages small cottages and it was bitter cold Wednesday evening and Next, one man stuck his head out of the cottage and he says, you'll never get over that bridge, you'll never, you'll never take that bridge. So next, another man came to the scene and he says, if you had a few shovelfuls of clay, you could get a few shovelfuls of cinders, any cinders there in the fire. Mm-hmm. So they went around. Before I knew where it was, there was maybe six or eight men and they'd all shovels. Now, they were total strangers to us and they shoveled clay and dirt all the way from Hazel Hatch Bridge to Peamount Gate to get us up to Peamount. You know, like, that type of... Once it was the horse. Do you know what I mean? Whereas uh, you could be broke down in your motor car and you could stay there. talk to the horse and there was those who growled with the horse you know gave out to the horse and sort of not hit him now but took it out voice wise on the horse you know blame the horse I've, I've known men to come out of the coal yard with a nice load and say to the horse that was a nice load I got Maggie you, we, we got a nice load Maggie and I've known fellas to come out and say to the horse well, what are you standing there looking for, your bloody Egypt now? Look at the bloody load we're not getting. Yeah, you're not carrying it. You're only pulling it, you know. And there was, there was this great uh, family connection. The horse was part of him. He was part of the man. And uh, very, very few... I've never known any of them to be cruel to the horse. Because after all, a well-looked-after animal will last a lot better, taking a practical view of it, will last a lot better and be much happier than... One that's ill-treated in any way, and incidentally, if 
We ever got reports, as we occasionally did, of a man ill-treating his horse, and it was proved while well, the man would be sacked at once. But th these reports had to be taken with reservation. I remember on one occasion an old lady coming in to see me and saying that a certain man had been beating his horse with an iron bar. You know, I couldn't believe this. We checked on the horse, found out who it was, and there wasn't a mark on the horse at all. <laughs> you know, he obviously hadn't been doing it. He may have given it an odd flick with a, a switch or something, which was quite normal in those days, but no mark on the horse. But if ever we found a horse with marks on him from beating, the man was discharged at once. Yeah, man, a relationship between a man uh, passing from man to animal, from driver to his cart horse, I can understand. But is it possible that that relationship was reciprocated in a reverse way from horse to driver? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Uh, several horses wouldn't move uh, unless they're a particular man. Like you could come up and say, "Yup, yup," but the horse, you know, cock his ears, sort of. He would wait until he knew, and uh, he knew. The, I think the, the the best one of the of the horse playing his part, uh, the bellman who were, had a very small cut between the profit and, and, and loss. Like they, they didn't buy coal all that cheap, so they hadn't a great marginal profit on the ton of coal. So they used to try and get an extra bit of weight, and this was all part of the, the business. But uh, one of the ways of getting a bit of weight was when they were weighing the car in, tear, take the tear weight of the car. So the horse would come in, the car would be on the scales, and then just as you were about to set the beam, which was a beam-type scale, you had to push the beam up and down to find exactly where this car weighed. But while you were, were manipulating that, the bellman would go, uh, <whistles> something like that. And the horse would actually look around its head towards the window where I was weighing, possibly to see as I was watching it. And then, if I was or I wasn't watching it, the horse's two back feet would bang up onto the scales, which would make about three on the weight and two on the weight more in the way going out the gate. Now, that, that was famous, that one. And uh, there was lots of the horses that, you know, like if these horses had been in circus, they'd, they'd have made a gold mine. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yes, I'm sure they would. I came across a copy of an agreement made between the Richardson firm and Guinnesses, dated 1898. One of the paragraphs in it reads, Such of the classes of vehicle to be supplied by the contractor shall be capable of carrying the following amount of goods, viz. each lorry shall be capable of carrying a load of three tonnes and shall be horsed accordingly, each float two tonnes and each dray 24 hundredweight. The term town as applied to deliveries in this agreement and as applicable to the prices set out in the schedule here too shall include the municipal area of the city of Dublin 
and the term inner circle vicinity shall include a radius of six miles from St. James's Gate Brewery and the term outer circle vicinity shall include a radius of 14 miles from St. James's Gate Brewery. And the schedule, well, it's interesting. Town deliveries, rate per tonne, two shillings and sixpence. Horse, man and lorry per day, 12 shillings. Horse, man and float per day, 10 shillings. Horse, man and dray per day, 8 shillings. And so on down to horse, man and dray per hour, 1 shilling. Inner circle vicinity deliveries went rate per tonne, 8 shillings. Horse, man and lorry per day, 14 shillings. Horse, man and float per day, 10 shillings. Horseman and dray per day, 8 shillings, and on so on down to the end where it says horse, man and dray per day, 1 shilling. Well, it's hard to imagine these days that anybody would make a fortune on those particular prices, but I suppose we have to remember that this agreement was drawn up in 1898. I wondered when I was speaking to Eamon Macamosh if, in fact, the horse and the lorry or the dray and the driver were very much a part of the scene of Dublin, of the overall picture of the city. A famous thing when I was growing up was scut the whip. And that, of course, was that when you were a kid, you never walked anywhere. Very, very rarely walked anywhere, although at the same time, you never spent a penny on the tram. Uh, if you did get on the tram, you tried to get off, they'll pay the penny. Uh, the funny thing there was there was two steps in the tram. At, at each end of the tram there was steps, and uh, we'd go on top, and when he'd come up one step, we'd go down the other stairs, and then when he'd go up the other stairs, we'd be, and we'd be going up and down on to try to get in without paying the penny. But you always scuttered. Now, all funerals were scuttered, sitting on the back of the cab, and all horse and cars, if you wanted to go, we'd say, down to Guinness's Jetty, which was a favourite place where all the horses lined up uh, along Guinness's Jetty, waiting for the delivery. The barges would be taking the barges down to the custom house, bringing them across the ships in England. But all the key would be a line of, of horse trapping. Well, all, I, all you had to do was go down to Kilmainham Cross. Now, within a matter of minutes, there'd be six or seven horse cars coming down maybe Lamb's Jam Factory or B&I horses going back after being out delivered in Toronto to his chocolate factory or something like that. Get on the back, sit on the back, jump on the back because you could run as quick as them. Jump up on the back and then someone shout out, Scud the whip, mister, scud the whip. And he'd flick the whip back, long whip back to get your hands, you see, to hit. Well, uh, I think that there was less accidents in those days. There, there, there was n- People got there. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they didn't get there as quick, but they got there. And there were less accidents. Uh, very rarely uh, you you read or heard of someone being killed by a horse and car. It was somebody knocked down, yes, by a horse and car. And then there was the lovely uh, excitement of the time. I won't say every day in the week, but every day in the month, there'll be a runaway. A horse would get frightened on both, and the local hero would be out charging, human all, and 
Some fella who, who you thought wouldn't say boo to anyone was the local fella who threw himself in front of the horse and stopped the horse. And Everyone in Dublin wanted to do this. This, this was real Gene Autry stuff off Tom Mix and John Wayne, the pictures. And uh, I think that was the lovely thing, the runaways. And Kilmainham Cross was a great place for runaways because the old tram, the trams made a terrible lot of noise. And uh, I think it was in England... Uh, some some woman was talking something. There was some discussion or something about sex, and some woman said, "Well, as, the, as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses." <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think this was the thing. The one thing that scared the horses was the trams. You see, used to when the 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 aerial going up to the wires, the connection. When that would go along, it'd give it a, a swizz, but then also it'd throw off green and blue and red lights, and one of these sparks would explode, you know, with a bang. And of course, a horse be standing there, his ears would cock up, and next he'd, he'd get the bit in his teeth, and he'd be away. And then everyone would be out, run away, horse, clear the road, run away, horse. And then the local hero. But it was always one of my dreams as a, a child, the Walter Mitty dream. That's uh, I would stop a runaway horse in College Green or something, but I never did. <laughs> And of course, at this stage, it's highly unlikely that Eamon Hamosh is going to achieve his ambition of saving, uh, stopping a runaway horse and saving the uh, beautiful young lady, be she princess or otherwise, on that particular cart. Mind you, it's possible that it may happen because there is a revival of interest in the draft horse and there is a revival of interest in the heavy horse. The current edition of the Farmer's Weekly has an article, and uh, this paragraph is from it. The revival of the heavy horse has been a triumph for perseverance, popular appeal and public relations. From near extinction a few years ago, the heavies have become a crowd-pulling attraction that can draw applause to equal that for the show jumpers at Wembley's Horse of the Year show, or 10,000 spectators to a horse-blowing match such as the Southern Counties Heavy Horse Association's All-England Championships at Windsor. Here at home, of course, Bordnagopal and the Irish Draft Horse Association are doing great work as well, so hopefully we may see more of the dray horses on the streets of Dublin. That is, of course, if that particular horse can make his way through the traffic, the density of traffic that exists in Dublin and indeed in other cities. It may happen. It may become a practical and a viable proposition. One thing I wonder about, though, and that is, why did the horse disappear, did the dray horse disappear from the streets of Dublin so suddenly? Was it just traffic, or were there other reasons? (laughs) 
Now, by about 1953, I think, or 54, early in the mid-50s, you could buy a hunter for something, say, 30 quid. You could get a hunter, because I worked at that time in Donnelly Coal Merchants, and uh, the big horse dealer was Cooper at Queen Street, and we used to buy the horses from Cooper, and you could get one for around 30 quid. Then some genius came along with an idea that you could export horses for horse meat and that you could get something like five or six pound a hundredweight. Now, if a horse weighed 10 or 11 hundredweight, that was 11, 6 and 66 quid for a horse that you could only buy for 30 quid. So now horses became a money proposition. And I worked on the docks and every day, down the docks by the cobblestones, you'd hear the pitter patter, the clip clop, hundreds upon hundreds of horses down to the B&I boat going over to England to be slaughtered, used for horse meat and whatever else was used then. In fact, it got so bad that I think this was, it may have been the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals or it may have been a, a branch committee of that. But I remember a big parade through the city of Dublin. Uh, stop ex- exporting horses for slaughter. And the irony of this is the company I was with at the time loaned 25 horses to march in the parade. And the same 25 horses were on the boat the following week on afternoon to be slaughtered. So they the made their last protest. But uh, then by, by, say, by 1955 nearly most places had made the changeover gradually. And then uh, horses were kept in some companies because there were places where only a horse could go. You know, there were sort of little alleyways in Dublin where you couldn't get a motorcar up, so the horse was handy to get up to these places. And uh, they kept on a, a, a handful of horses, three or four horses. Uh, I joined Donnelly Call Merchants. Uh, in the 40s and at that time they had something like I think it was 126 horses two steam motor cars now by 1955 the same company had something like 100 motor cars and two horses so like within the period of time they swung over so, uh, in actual fact, the disappearance of the horse, while in a sense it might appear to be gradual, actually happened quite suddenly. The, the disappearance of the horse was rootless because it was speculating, it was money making. And what actually, it was wiped out in, I'd say maybe six months or a year at the most. The whole of 19, say, 53 or 54, whatever year it was. But uh, the... The, the minute the money, like the minute the horse became more valuable dead than alive, th- this is what killed it. And I remember, now I worked on the Spencer Dock Bridge and they had to pass under that, over that bridge, well under and over because it was a two-way bridge, but they had to come across that bridge. And I would say that in one afternoon, anything up to six to 800 horses had come galloping down along that like as if it was out in the Wild West and in Texas or somewhere, and they'd be all galloping down in all 16 across the road, all galloping down, all tied to one another, being brought down to the boat to be brought away for slaughter. Mr Richardson, of course, 
people can become very emotional about horses, indeed about all animals, but particularly, I think, about the horse. There can be a great deal of, I think, emotional nonsense talked about the animal. But um, surely that couldn't have entered too much into the carrying business. Well, it did, particularly in latter years. Uh, there was a great deal of agitation about cruelty to horses, horses being shipped to Belgium and France for food and so on. And we were approached on many occasions, indeed, if I remember rightly, we were attacked in the newspapers on occasions, any time we got rid of a horse. Well, from a business and practical point of view, you have to get rid of a horse. We did our level best to make sure that they went to farms and so on. And very often... When they did go to farms, we heard afterwards they mysteriously disappeared from the farm. (laughs) You know, from a practical point of view, from a business point of view, you just couldn't keep track. You you had to, once they weren't weren't able to do their full day's work, you had to get rid of them. You got a horse in at five years old, trained. What was his working life with you? Well, it depended on the horse, first of all, and largely depended on the driver. If you had a driver that drove his horse too hard, well, he didn't last so well. Um, I may say that the horses were well looked after. We had a contract with Mr Lambert. Uh, Lambert's the vets, of you know them well. And uh, any time that anything was wrong with the horse, he was sent for at once. I, I may say that this was in the form of, of a contract, mm. We paid him whether he came or not, you see. And really all he charged, apart from the stipulated amount, would be for medicines and so on. The horse side of your carrying business finished up in the early 70s, in the, 60, in the early 60s. Did you, did you miss it? Did, was the, did something disappear, do you think, from city life, from the city scene? Yes, I, I, I thought it did. We used to take a pride in our horses. They were one of the sights of Dublin. And um, uh, even these days, there's various old people that I meet say to me, oh, we remember your horses well. We love to see them going through the city and so on and so on. People don't love to see motor lorries going through the city. Bench. Yup, yup. Scud the whip, mister, scud the whip. 